This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Congress finally acts to update the NOTAM system. And flight instructors can now renew with ease. They hosted a great stole flying in Valdez. We'll give you the numbers. And Delta Hawk introduces a jet-fueled four-cylinder piston engine. Finally, gamma numbers are out and all looking pretty good, David. They do look pretty good, Ian. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, turn right. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulitz. So, David, our guest is Gene Picard. He runs Skyward Aviation, and among many other things, Skyward moves organs around the country for transplant. And they operate 11 Learjets and have a pretty rockin' FBO business. Gene was a great guy. I'm glad we got a hold of him. And I think one day soon we're going to follow him on one of those organ transplant transportation missions. Yeah, very neat. Okay, so let's start with the news. The NOTAM system, which we, you and I have gotten down on many times because we've, we've both been like all pilots, you know, at various times deceived by the NOTAM system. Right. So we had talked to, I think on a previous show about how Congress was hoping to act to put some updates in place, force the FAA to put some updates. And now there is a bill that has been signed. As we talk about this, headed to the president's desk, they're finally going to do something about it. Yeah, legislation was implemented to fashion a new NOTAM system. And, you know, that could do nothing but help us out because right now it is very cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Ian, if you recall a couple of months ago, it kind of melted down right around Christmas time. Yeah. I believe that was the, the dateline. And a lot of folks took notice of that, notice to air that it was just not a very efficient, you know, way to get the word out to pilots. But yeah, yeah there's a House Bill 346, the NOTAM Improvement Act, on May 22nd. Uh, that was uh, following the passage of the bill by the unanimous consent in the Senate on May 9th. So rare agreement. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it's true. So one thing about this, that when they first started talking about doing this, and right after the meltdown, it was to create a task force with um, industry professionals, safety experts, unions, that sort of thing, to get together to talk about how to update it. Well, this actually, this has even more teeth in it now. Now they've kind of forced the FAA's hands where they said, modernize the NOTAM system, get it up and running, and create a backup critically, I think, by September 30th of 2024. So we're talking some real action here. There's a deadline there. You're right. That's only about, it's a little bit over a year away from here. You know, the other thing is that we're, I was just mentioning a minute ago that there's some rare agreement there. This was a bipartisan effort 
You yeah. know, uh, Senators Amy Klobuchar, she's a Democrat. Jerry Moran, a Republican. Shelley Moore Capito, a Republican. They all introduced a companion bill in that Senate. So that's really good news. A lot of folks recognize that we need to have a more streamlined NOTAM system. And, I, Ian, I was getting ready to go on a flight later today, and it is so super cumbersome in this Washington, D.C., CIFRA area. Yeah. I mean, we, we do need some changes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So moving on to some CFI changes. This is like the first major change in decades, I would say, to CFI certification processes and something that AOPA has long advocated for, for about over 20 years now. And that is that the FAA is proposing to eliminate the CFI expiration date. Yeah, almost 25 years ago, Ian, in 1999, you were right on mark with that. And this will affect someone like yourself because you are a CFI. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all it does is it it seeks to remove the expiration dates from flight instructor certificates, which basically brings it in line with other pilot certificates. You know, every two years we have to get a little bit of a check ride. We've got to, you know, dot some I's and cross some T's. So I think this is a great move to keep proficiency and recency available, and there are several means to do that. So it just brings CFIs in line with everyone else. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I was, before we got on here, I was reading through the NPRM, which was this, so now it's in the NPRM stage. It is not as, it doesn't go as far as I would like. So yes, there is an expiration date now. You miss the expiration date. So if, like, for example, I do a FERC, the Flight Instructor Refresher Course. I do AOPAs. If I don't finish that by the end of my 24 calendar months, my CFI is null and void. I have to go take a check ride to to become a CFI again. To get back into being a CFI. But now yeah, if I understand it, this measure will avoid that. You will just need to actually take some recency of experience rides. Not exactly. Oh, okay. Please explain. Yeah. So that's what I was hoping based on the headlines. No, when you go into the details, essentially what it's going to do is you still have to, instead of an expiration, they're calling it a recency of experience, just like you mentioned, the private pilot. Okay. So, but what happens when you don't do your flight review? You just essentially sit on your certificate until you do a flight review, right? Right. Right. Not the case with the CFI. So if you don't do the recency of experience every 24 months, your CFI still will become null and void, and you will have to take a check ride to reinstate it. Basically, though, what it gives you, uh, two things. One is every two years I get a new plastic card with a new issue date, so that's going to change. The other thing is there is a grace period. So at the end of that 24 calendar months, like I said, I have to finish my FERC. AOPA, you know, we get these call reports at the end of every month, people are calling frantic. Oh my God, did you get my paperwork? Did it process? Right. Because you know, if you don't, if it's not in by midnight, man, you're done. So there's now going to be a three month grace period. They're proposing a three month grace period where okay, you could so complete a three firm. month grace period could help out. That's good. Yep. So you're not at down to the wire on the last day of the 24th month and, and, and really walking on eggs there. You've got yeah. a, a few more, we got 12 more weeks to get it done. Yeah, that's right. The other thing it does is it adds another renewal avenue. So previously, it's most people either do it by you have to recommend a certain number of students within that 24 calendar months oh, to right. take check rides sure. and they have to pass. You can take a check ride if you want. You can do the FERC or there's some like, you know, airline and military things. They're proposing another one, which is if you are if you participate in the WINGS program, you can use that to renew. But you also have to 
teach in the wings program, you have to teach 15 wings flights for five different pilots, which is quite a high bar. 15 flights or, or 15 like online, you know, study scenarios? No, no, it's 15 hours. Actually, okay, so say. you have to go yeah. up with 15 students that are part of the wings program? So five students minimum 15 hours minimum so it could be like oh, one person oh, wow. for you know 10 hours and then four more for four hours or whatever well, yeah it's, kinda, it's quite it's quite it's a high burden. tough yeah I, i'm a i'm a wings member so you and i could fly together and we oh, could, cool <laughs> we yeah could do that obviously they're they're hoping to get pe more people to do the wings program but it's like i could see flight instructors around like hey man i'll take you on your wings for free man just you know <laughs> i just need to get my renewal so yeah i think i'll still be doing the FERC honestly but they, they do give you a little bit of grace period, which I think is important. Well, so step in the right direction. You got yeah. the three month grace period. Uh, it sounds like it sounds like a better option than than just flat out you're done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So if you want to comment on that, the NPRM is open until June 22nd. You can go to AOPA's website. You'll see the news story. It'll send you a link to the, uh, the Federal Register where you can go in and comment. And I encourage people to do it because they do make changes on final rules based on those comments. Yep. And speaking of stopping and things like that, we we're talking yeah. about stopping those certificates for CFI renewal. What about the Valdez fly-in, the short takeoff and landing event up in Valdez, Alaska? That was just a couple of weeks ago. There were some really interesting aircraft there and some interesting results. Yeah. So Valdez is kind of the the OG of the stole competitions, right? I mean, they've been doing it for years up there. Right. And, of course, with Alaska, you always wonder about the weather, but they did say it was fantastic weather. They were May 12th through 14th at Pioneer Field in Valdez. They had a number of different classes, and the numbers the numbers on these are just incredible as you go through these categories. And so we're going to talk a, few, a little bit about them. Dan Reynolds won the light sport category again this year, as he's done many years. He holds the record for the shortest landing ever. That was 2018, a total of 9 feet 6 inches, which is in, just mind-bending. I mean, it's incredible. This year, he won it with, I mean, my God, he, it took so far for him to land. It was like 38 feet. I don't know what, you know, what happened this year. Anyway, with a 28-foot takeoff with a combined total of 66 feet. That is pretty impressive, Ian, as is the alternate Bush category. Uh, Nathan, we're probably going to mispronounce your last name, Rehack, uh, took the win in the alternate Bush class in his experimental CAW-12 Supercruiser, a combined score, Ian, of 171 feet, but 49 feet shorter than second place. So that's a pretty good, a pretty good cushion, if you would. Yeah, pretty amazing. So the Bush class, those are uh, Super Cubs. And uh -huh. actually, you may have noticed a Tri-Pacer in the category. Yes, I did notice a Tri-Pacer competing in that in that Bush class, Ian. Yeah. Do you consider the Tri-Pacer a Bush airplane? I don't know. That's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? I'm still learning how to do a short, short landing. But I'll tell you what, Ian, you lay off the throttle on that thing, and it's coming down like a ton of bricks. Yeah. So maybe <laughs> it is pretty good for that. Yeah. You're right <laughs> on. Right. Yeah. So let me see. The winner of that was uh, that class was a PA-18, George Pine. And this was actually his first year, first time ever competing in Stoll, which is good for you, George. That's impressive. Well, you know what? Speaking of uh, most of the aircraft that we're a little bit more familiar with, well, we are familiar with PA-18s and Tri-Pacers mm -hmm. and all, but sure. the Cessna 170 class has been a pretty strong class for a long time. And, and there's a Cessna 172 competitor in that class, Stephen Spence. 
He has a 1958 Cessna 172, and you might remember he won this event before. And this is the third consecutive year with combined shortest distance of 170 feet in a Cessna 172. Now, one, 1958 is that straight tail Cessna. Yeah. Yeah, they're lighter. And, and you so got the manual really nice. flaps, right? Yeah. So you yeah. can do a little bit more with it, but that is impressive. It's incredible. Really, really incredible stuff. Heavy touring, those are the 206s, 185s, 180s. But the winner this year was uh, not surprisingly, I would say, a Hilo Courier. Those things are quite impressive. That was flown by Lucas Stutzer with a combined total distance of 177 feet. It's a heavy airplane. That's incredible, Ian. Yeah. You know, so you've got a lot of several folks in the 170 foot category, and I think I'm going to aspire to that. I'm going to try to do some testing with the with the mighty Tripacer. It has a name, I would by love the way. To see that. The name now, uh, according to my wife and daughter, is going to be Tracy the Tripacer. Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> Tracy the Tripacer. I heard some people around the office calling it. Was it pumpkin? Little pumpkin, something like could, that. Is it, that because it could of the be color? That or the cream puff? I've heard that too. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. So we'll see. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to do some testing with that. But you know, that takes years of skill to do that yeah. kind of short takeoff and landing, and it is super practical. I maintain that it is a practical, you know, thing for a lot of us to do. It's a great skill to have if you're trying to get into and out of, you know, short fields. And sometimes yeah. you got to do that, or say if you have an emergency and an engine out. So you got to know how to do these things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, especially the fact that it's up in Alaska, I mean, you feel like there's there's real purpose to what they're right. doing, right? Yeah, it's like they do this kind of stuff all the time, and it's, it was a way to get together to show off their skills. And we'll be right back. All right, moving on about new engines. Delta Hawk, which has been developing a diesel engine for many, many years, finally made it to the finish line, announced on May 18th that they have received FAA certification. And it's basically, in an upside-down V4 engine. V4s are near and dear to my heart from the motorcycling world. Motorcycle, but this, yeah. Yeah, yep. but this is a 180-horsepower DHK 180. The group bringing this to the market is out of Racine. Is it Racine, Wisconsin? Yeah, Racine, Wisconsin. That's yep. not too far from Oshkosh. And um, this, this engine has been kicking around for a while. It is a clean sheet design. Jill Tomlin reported on it. An inverted V, turbocharged and supercharged, mechanical fuel injection. What's the difference between mechanical and electrical fuel injection? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what don't know either. the benefit of I mean, I guess that, you know, when you're talking about FADEC, that's going to be electrically controlled. Oh, okay. They d so may, not yeah. digital, but uh, mechanical. Yeah. Mechanical. Yeah, liquid cooling, direct drive, and here's what caught my eye. 40% fewer moving parts than other engines in its category. Now, hmm. what engines are in its category now, Ian? I mean, these days, it's like the Austro and uh, the Continentals, you know, okay. like the CD-180. So, yeah, that's going to be it, really. Jet A, fuel, diesel, whatever you can put in there. Can you probably run yep. Crisco oil on that, too? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> that's right so the, it is out it's certified that's awesome it's been i mean i'm trying to think of the last time we had a an airplane engine clean sheet that was certified probably it would have been the austro maybe uh -huh. i mean obviously yeah. continental and lycoming have put theirs but i'm talking about you know completely new design maybe uh maybe the tealer that's now the continental i don't know anyway so there's not a lot of detail about this thing yet which is surprising because it's been in development for so long they do say it's going to burn significantly less fuel than an avgas which we know the trade-off is like any diesel engine it's heavier 
the dry weight's 357 pounds, which is heavier than like a comparable, you know, 0360, something like that. They also have not listed a price nor a TBO time. So those are going to be big question marks. But you can get in on the act right now for only a thousand bucks. Reserve your spot. Thousand bucks. Yep. So yeah, definitely go to their website, check it out, deltahawk.com. Congrats to them because man, that is no small feat. And I uh, can't wait to see a few of these out in the field and, and to see how they perform. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. Yep. So, all right. We want to finish up talking about gamma numbers, which we love to do just to get a great pulse on, on the industry and what the manufacturers are up to. Those just came out last week and pretty good news all around, David. Indeed, Ian. Piston Airplanes posted a pretty good gain of about... I'd say with the first three months of 2023, we're looking at 294 aircraft delivered, a 10% increase hmm. over last year. Yep. And and uh, you'll be pleased to know that turboprop aircraft deliveries increased about 6.5% also with 117 aircraft. But business jet deliveries were nearly flat. But I've got a little bit more insight on that later on. Hmm. Okay. So that's good. I mean, those given that the supply chain is still an issue for a lot of these manufacturers, that's really good. It is. feel really good about that. And um, obviously, big backlog still. It was the first time, Jim Moore was reporting for AOPA here, it was the first time he noted in a number of years that actually billings went down, which of course says that... Yeah, the price went down, but the numbers went up. Yeah. That's interesting. Obviously just shows that there's more pistons being put out in right. fewer big-time jets. So And yeah. more training aircraft, too, and less, less big iron. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Jim also reported on a little controversy out there. There was a protest. Yeah, which we saw yeah. at eBase uh, over in Geneva that people, you know, climate issues big time in Europe and, and lots of, always in the news. You know, France is you know, talking about banning short haul flights and everything else. So, yeah, Pete Bunce did comment on that. I think that's going to be an issue the whole honestly, the whole industry is going to face over the next few years. Right. You know, he also talked about some stuff they've been talking to Congress about, like getting F more FAA people in so they can certify these things in a little more efficient way. So yeah, good stuff. So I don't know, you've been through the report. I went through it a little bit. Yeah. What'd you see? You know, Ian, what I was trying to do when I did a little bit of research on this, and, and I know you like to go deep on some of the numbers, it's okay to compare it to 2022. That's okay. Mm -hmm. 2021, 2022. But really, the last time we had, you know, I would say significant movement without supply chain issues and things like that was 2019. Yeah. So I, I like to take, you and I both like to take a look at 2019. Um, and do some specifics on that with some of the manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I went ahead and, and took the liberty, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple of things out as soon as I get to my notes here, about 2019 versus 2022. So why don't we do this before we get to 2019, talk about 2022 versus 2023. Yeah. Helicopter deliveries were up as well, which we didn't mention, which and we should, and that's over piston and turbine helicopters, both up against 2022 from the first quarter. So that was good news, and we that don't want to let that go because it had been sort of a flat market for a while. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So looking back, let's look at Cirrus aircraft because they're typically one of the leaders, right, if not the leader. Mm -hmm. I was just looking at 2019, the number of SR-20s delivered versus 20. 23. In 2023, first quarter, 13 SR-20s were delivered versus only nine oh. 
in, in 2019. But here's what happens. The inverse is true with the SR22s and 22Ts were basically about the same. 50, I'm going to add this up, 57 in 2019 versus 59 yeah. in 2023. Close, yeah. Close. And in 2023, actually, we outdid 2019 with the Vision Jet, 18 this quarter versus 14 in that quarter. Hmm. So better Vision Jets, the rest about equal, maybe a few more SR20s for the training fleet. Yeah, that's interesting. Just occurred to me, I thought you were going to say maybe that the SF-50 numbers were a little lower in 2019 because that would say that some of those SR-22Ts are going to the jet, right? Obviously, they're right. trying to move them. So, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I was surprised. And, and 80 overall aircraft in 2019 versus 90 in oh, 2023 first quarter. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one. So, one thing that Jim pointed out in his story was Diamond, that compared to last year, Diamond is actually up pretty significantly. They did 63 total units this year, which... Is, is quite a bit up from their 60, well, no, I'm sorry, from their 40 they did in the same period last year. So that's really good. And so what they do in 2019? In 2019, Diamond did first quarter total units. You want everything all together? Yeah. 63. 63. Okay, so that shows they're back to pre-COVID levels. So that's good. That's what, yeah, that makes good sense. Yeah, yeah good point. Yeah. You, you surprised me with that one. I wasn't prepared to comment on that one. <laughs> but check this one out. And I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Dyer? Dyer? Yeah. Dar? It's French. Just, okay. Yeah, so now here's where the money, the difference in money comes in, Ian. They sold 15 aircraft altogether down the line in 2019, uh, that quarter, versus seven yeah. in 2023, wow. this quarter. So in 2019, the billing was $49 million and $30 million wow. this year. That's interesting. So that is almost 50% less yeah. this year. Yeah. That's where some of that disparity comes in with total billings. Yeah. Wow. That we were talking huh. about. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's let's jump down to, let's go to Piper. I know they were down a little bit from 2022. So I'm curious what they're doing to 19. There are 41 total units in 23, almost all of those. So 29 Archer and Pilots. Right. Three Seminoles. And then one each of the M class. No, I'm sorry. One... M350, 1500, and actually seven, I'm sorry, seven 600s, which is pretty cool. That's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good there. So I was looking back at 2019 for comparison. They actually sold, delivered, delivered more archers in 19. Okay. They delivered 30, 35 versus 29, 29 this quarter, but they also delivered nine Seminoles then versus three now. Wow. Huh. And seven of the 350s, seven of the 46, uh, of the 500s, the PA 46 line, but zero back then of the yeah, of the, the 600 600s. model. Because okay. I think it was brand new then. Yeah, they right? had, remember or they had an about, issue where they had stopped delivering for a little while. I don't remember exactly when that was, but yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interestingly, though, bottom line, dollars and cents. 40, almost $46 million in billing this quarter, 2023, the same in 2019. Oh, how about that? Hmm. Okay. How about, te- how about Technum? You like to take a look at them sometimes. Yeah, they're kind of a sleeper. So between all their models, which are a ton, 72 total units this year for about $27.7 million. 
and 51 total units in 2019 for four, wow. 14 million. So they sold big jump. They jumped. They jumped more and more billings too. Yeah. So jump. we're seeing some really interesting results across yeah. the line here. And so what about Textron? We always have to talk about Textron, obviously. 115 total units this year, 26 Skyhawks, 11 Skylanes. Let's see, did they, oh, one Baron, no Bonanzas. So that's an improvement over last year already. Well, and looking at 2019, I'm just looking at the first quarter, total units all across the board, that which includes some of the Jets now. Mm-hmm, sure. So 124 aircraft back then and 115 now yeah but what about billings to that point about the mix okay yeah well billings back then uh in 2019 were 771 million dollars that's not far that's not far off of what we got right going on right now it's not yeah 742 but of course you know there's been a ton of inflation in that time so their costs are going to be way uh, higher. that's a good point and i know they do talk a lot about supply chain and that being a problem for them so i do it makes you wonder how fast how much faster they could produce airplanes if supply chain weren't an issue but hmm, all right but cool. pretty strong numbers i i guess my point yeah. is that we're getting back to a lot of the 2019 we're getting equivalent getting now in the 2019 numbers yeah. and then we're moving ahead in some of the other categories so i think that's good news for the industry yeah so one that's not there anymore, unfortunately, is Learjet. Oh, okay. So Gene Picard, you know, he's flying legacy airplanes now in Skyward Aviation, but that's okay. They're still fast. They're still cool. And they, they bring, among many things, organs all over the country. That's true. Good point. We'll hear from Gene in just a minute. go to what used to be called Terry Airport, which is Indianapolis Executive Airport now, Indy Exec, uh, TYQ. And they had a glider club there at the time. It's called Central Indiana Soaring Society. And I would go there and I would basically, I, I met all these old timer Vietnam vets and I didn't have two pennies to rub together. So in exchange for being a member of the crew and mm-hmm. detailing some of the airplanes, mm-hmm. they started giving me ground school. Ground school turned into a little bit of glider flying. And the guy that soloed me in a glider when I was 15 was a guy named Bob Gillen. He was, I think he was in his mid-80s when he soloed me. He's long gone. Right. And he was a World War II, from what I remember, he was a World War II Navy pilot. Wow. Instructor. Right. And so, you know, he... That's great. That's he, great. He, sort of DNA to be yeah, to be and then great. and then I had other guys around me. I had a uh, Air Force Vietnam C one thirty pilot that was a retired American guy, right. and a bunch of different military guys. And so those guys were influencing this fifteen year old kid that was running around. And look, I started building model airplanes when I was probably twelve. You know, destroying tables at my parents' right. house. You know, like every good aviator should. Right. You know, uh, infuriating my parents, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know. Many interesting adventures with my remote control airplanes, including the time I got a propeller stuck in my knee, infuriated <laughs> my parents. That was that was fun. But started flying when I was 15, soloed, got my ticket when I was 16, as soon as I could in the glider, and then just kept working towards my single engine land 
you know, again, I was financially constrained because my parents were like, okay, you got to pay for all of it. Right. And I did. And then I became really infatuated with, okay, you know, th this needs to be a part of my life. And at that time, I really started looking at the military because mm -hmm. I knew that that was really where you were going to get the, the best training in the world. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate to, I had a, a guard unit there in the Indiana Air National Guard out of Terre Haute, Indiana, where I ended up enlisting. My mother had to sign the permission slip. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it's a big, it's a big thing for them because they, my mother, one of the reasons she wanted me to leave the Soviet Union was because she didn't want a Jewish kid going into the Red Army. And here I am in this new foreign country and I'm telling her, hey, I want to join the Air Force. I want to fly. Right. And she's she's like, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's right. Like, like do you uh -huh. know what we went through to get here and uh -huh. get you away from that? And uh, so, but she ended up, you know, she ended up signing the permission slip. My mother was my first passenger. She flew with me when I got my private in the glider. And you know, my grandfather, who's no longer alive, he, he came up to her. It was right after I got my license. You, know, you come up to a glider, you don't know anything about aviation. You see this airplane. And he said to her, hey, let's leave now before it's too late. Mm -hmm. You know, get out of this thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. He was scared. All right. You know, you had, we had a, a, a tow plane and everything and but she got in it. She was brave. Mm -hmm. She got in it. She flew with me. In the glider. In yeah. the glider. Yeah. Nice. In a Blanick, okay. L23 Blanick. And yeah, that's the story. You know, and then from there on the aviation thing just kept going. I went to Indiana university where I got a business degree. And then simultaneously I, did an internship for a commercial real estate developer when I was 16 and 17, my two summers before I finished mm -hmm. high school, uh, a national company where they kind of mentored me on the real estate and the business side of things. Then I went to Indiana, Indiana University. I, I enlisted in the Guard in May of 2001. And then a little thing called 9-11 happened. Right. So I had my 18th birthday in boot camp at Lackland in San Antonio, Texas. And I enlisted to be a maintenance guy on F-16s, so to be right. a crew chief. I got activated after 9-11 for more training and got prepared with the Indiana Air Guard to engage in some of the, the deployments that were going on at the right. time after that. Ended up never deploying. There was a bunch of political issues with, I don't know, this was a long time ago, Turkey wouldn't let us fly through their airspace. Right. So we were all pulled up to go and right. not going. Uh, obviously, my mother was very excited about right. that. Right. But I ended up being able to go and finish my business degree at Indiana University right. while being a traditional guardsman in the guard. I thought the guard was the greatest thing since sliced bread. It was an absolute privilege to, to serve in the guard. What I loved the most about it was that I got all the active duty training, but I could continue to serve part-time. I didn't have to go active duty where every three years I was jerked around right, and right. sent some new place. Right. Yeah. So I, I fell in love with the guard. The guard was the, the place for me. And I, I still, to this day, you know, people ask me, hey, what should mm -hmm. I do in the military? You should mm -hmm. join the guard. Mm -hmm. There's nothing better than right, the guard. Right, right. Because you can have your cake and eat it too. Right. And out of my 21 years of service, I did about seven years active duty. Gotcha. Uh, I did a little tour at the Pentagon, did a variety of things. Right. All over the world. Right. Uh, so I, I really loved my time in the guard. It was truly a privilege right. to do it. But then when you went after university, you went back for pilot training? Yeah. So I, as I was finishing up Indiana University, this was 2004 now, I was finishing up Indiana University. I graduated from the Kelly School of Business there. I got a degree in management. At that point, I had worked up to, I got my instrument ticket, I got my commercial ticket, and I had, you know, a couple hundred hours. And I started, I started applying to guard units all over the country. 
and you know I, I put my package together I was on all the chat boards learning how to do that I didn't really have anybody mentoring me so I spent a lot of time looking at it sort of organically and understanding what was required and how to put my package together and I sent it out to a bunch of places mm-hmm. got a lot of no's but got you know I, I focused my efforts really on two places I, I was really excited about Washington DC and really excited about Philadelphia Washington DC had an F-16 squadron Philadelphia had an A-10 squadron and I made it a point you know the other applications I just mailed them for the process but I made it a point for those two to actually drive cross-country and hand deliver them myself and you know I probably had $300 to my name and I probably right. spent 200 of it on gas driving driving my, my broke my broken vehicle to Washington DC and Philadelphia to Willow Grove to show up in person and actually hand deliver my application to both of these squadrons which I was very fond of and where I wanted to fly so you know guard units are very hard to get into it's very political they typically get 100 plus applicants and they interview 10 and they mm-hmm. hire one primary and one alternate wow and I got an interview at both Philadelphia and in uh, the DC guard and you know I I slipped through the cracks I still don't know how I got mm-hmm. hired but I actually I was sitting in my college house and I was sitting I was just sitting there actually getting ready to go fly and I got a call from the DC guard the squadron mm-hmm. commander and he said you know I had the interview I thought it went fine but it was very competitive I thought there's right. no way in the world that I would get hired in DC he called me and said hey you're our pick you're our guy I thought it was a joke I thought he was messing with me I didn't believe him and I said all right give me a number I'm gonna call you back to make sure this is real mm-hmm. so I called him back it, it was the squadron. So I hang up the phone. He's, you know, he says, congratulations. We're excited to have you. you you're the guy. You're our first mm-hmm. pick. Wow. And, and you know, my, I, was, I was blown away. I never thought that that would happen. And, and then as I'm sitting there trying to, to rationalize that that was really happening, I got a call about 35 minutes later from the guy that interviewed with me in both D.C. and in Philly. Mm-hmm. And he calls me and he says, hey, man. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. I go, what do you mean, what am I going to do? He goes, whatever you do is going to affect the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So what are you talking about? He goes, you got primary at both, and I got secondary at both. Okay. Wow. Wherever you wherever you don't go, I go. Right. At this point, I had no idea I got hired right. in Philly. And so hang up the phone with him. I'm like, you're messing with me. There's mm-hmm. no way in the world I got hired in both places. 20 minutes later, phone rings. Hey, this is the squadron commander of Philadelphia. You're our guy. And... I ended up going with DC because they called me first and, you know, I was a crew chief on F-16s and I, I, I was really... Where, where were they flying in, in Willow Grove? A-10s. Okay. And ended up going with DC. The other guy went to Willow Grove. Willow Grove ended up shutting down. So right. in hindsight, that was a good yeah. choice. He had to move, relocate his family. So I was very fortunate. I went to DC. You know, I, I was selected to go to uh, NATO pilot training. I was very, very fortunate to get into that. And so, you know, here I am, this kid from the Soviet Union. I got hired by the DC Guard. I'm at Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, where I had previously done crew chief training, because at that point I was already a, a, I was an E-5 staff sergeant crew chief in the Indiana Guard out of Terre Haute. And, you know, I, I, I was, I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. So ended up getting my wings at Shepard, completing all the training requirements and getting through 
the majority of my air-to-air -air qualification when I found myself behind the tanker in Ohio because mm -hmm. I was flying F-16s right. on the Ohio Guard. Right. That's where I was going through the basic course to mm -hmm. complete my air-to-air -air qualification. Right. And I could not feel my feet. And I had pretty horrible sciatica. And I was encouraged to not talk about it until finally they were like, hey, your performance is starting to decline. What's going on right. with you? And I finally fessed up. And they said, uh, hey, you got to go get an MRI. I went and got an MRI. Right. I had two herniated discs in my spine. I've since had three spine surgeries. And, you know, pulling 9Gs every day. You know, look, at that point, they said, look, you're, you're kind of... Your F-16 days are, are kind of done, and a very good flight surgeon sat me down and said, hey, you know, you could you could try to fight the medical establishment of the mm -hmm. Air Force and try to come back right. to something with an ejection seat. Right. But my recommendation to you is that you don't, because what you have in your spine, if you ever had to eject, you could end up being right. paralyzed. Right. And I don't remember the guy's name, but that was the best advice. That was hard advice to take as a 24-year-old kid who just completed all that training and was flying around in that airplane. So I got to do it for a very short period of time. It was a privilege to do it. But then the squadron commander in DC said, all right, what do you want to do now, man? You're kind of broken. You know, I said, you know, I, I, I observed, I, I saw this squadron at Andrews uh, that flies VIP, that right. flies white unmarked Gulfstream jets and Boeing 737s. And I'm already moving to DC. My girlfriend at the time was, coming to DC for an internship, finishing up grad school at Pitt. So that girlfriend is now my favorite wife mm -hmm. and she's from Pittsburgh and we have three kids, you know, so it was very logical for us to end up in DC. And so, okay, I couldn't fly fighters. I interviewed at this other squadron and they hired me on the spot. Very lucky again. I don't know how that happened, but they hired me and I ended up spending the majority of my Air Force career, the 15 years of my career in the cockpit, I spent, you know, 13 of it in flying Gulf Streams and uh, so flying C-38s and C-40s, which was a really cool mission, which I loved. You know, I ended up having to have another back surgery towards the end of my career because my back was creating so many issues with sciatica. Mm -hmm. I had my last one a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so in April of uh, 22, I retired from the Air Guard. So I have been out of the Air Force now for almost, uh, what, 10 months? Hard to believe it's been that long. What was your rank when you retired? Major, major. Yeah, and again, I was a staff sergeant first. I was an E-5 right. first, and then yeah. and then I got to major. And they wanted me to go to school to promote. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to do all kinds of things. But look, I've always been a businessman. Mm -hmm. I've had a real estate development company in Washington, D.C. since 2008 called Picar Properties. We've developed about 40 million bucks of ground up real estate development. We've developed a bunch of different projects, luxury condos. And so I wasn't really the best candidate to pursue mm. a bureaucratic career right. in the Guard. Right. I was there purely for the airplane. You know, anything you asked me to do outside of the airplane, my my I just I wasn't the right guy. I was there for the love of aviation. Right. Which has really been at the core of me forever. And so I, I'm not a good participant in the bureaucracy. Right. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a right. businessman. I don't fit well into the bureaucratic box. You know, square peg, round hole, round hole. Right. You know, I'm I'm, I'm just I'm just wired differently. Right. I, I I don't believe in bureaucracy. 
I mean, look at my background, right? I defected from the Soviet Union. I, I have a fundamental dislike of <laughs> right <laughs> bureaucratic insanity, right. right? But I will say, look, I, I have some of the best friends mm -hmm. that I'll have the rest of my life mm -hmm. in the Guard. Mm -hmm. um, I love those guys to death. The mm -hmm. people at, at, at the DC Guard. But you were there for the flying, and the flying part, you, you probably went all over the planet. I did. Right. I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was a, it was really a privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I went all over the place. Mm -hmm. I was an instructor in the Gulf Stream, and then I transitioned to the 737 C40. Uh, so C38, it's a baby Gulf Stream. It's an Astra SPX jet. There were actually only two right. of them in the Guard. And then we delivered them to the Navy, and I actually delivered the last one to the mm -hmm. Navy. And so, you know, when the C-40 came around, I, at that point, I was so, I flew it, I have, I don't know, seven, eight hundred hours in it, mm -hmm. something like that. I, right. I don't know exactly, I can't, right. but, but I was, at that point in my career, I was really focused on the business stuff. Right, right. And I wasn't willing to come act, be, go on active duty and really focus for two, three right. years to upgrade to be an instructor right. in that airplane. Right. Because it wasn't worth it to me before, uh, anymore. I'd already right. been an instructor sure. right, right. in the Air Force. Yeah. And, at that point, I was more focused on growing my real estate development company mm. and continuing to be an entrepreneur. And so after 15 years of having my real estate company, um, I still have it, but it's definitely in wind down mode. I'm finishing up the obligations and projects that I committed I'm to. I'm going to ask you about that because it's yeah. like, that's a, that, you can't run both. You I mean, can't run both, yeah. right. So we closed our offices when COVID hit and Right as we closed the office, I bought into Liberty Air, which, okay. was, which was the 135 that was kind of run into. So are you selling that or are you, are you how are you winding it down? My, the real estate? Yeah. So I still have a portfolio of things that I own and operate in, right. in DC that I've developed right. over the years. I'm gonna keep those because right. they're just. The self-sustaining? Mostly, yeah. Right. And so the projects I'm doing now, I have one project that I'm finishing uh, where I'm purely a consultant. And I'm doing it as a courtesy to a gentleman who's phenomenal. It's really a, it's more of a commercial mixed use, uh, medical use type of facility that I'm building for them. Right. And so we're we're working on that now. That'll be my last right. ground up project in D.C. in Washington D.C. Because now at this point, last year we we bought Skyward Aviation, and we have. Plenty of real estate here for me to develop and continue to grow and grow our, our focus here. So, right. you know, look, I love real estate development. Uh, mm -hmm. I still love real estate development, mm -hmm. but doing business in Washington, D.C. Yeah. is not, after 15 years of doing it there, yeah. I can tell you it is a it is not a place that is conducive to business. Right. Uh, for the same reason, I don't love massive bureaucracies. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to yeah. find a worse one than, than Washington, D.C. Right. Washington, D.C. is a great town. Right. Great place to go eat. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly difficult place to do business. It's it's just a very challenging place. Mm -hmm. And and you know, I applaud those that want to do it. But I realize as I've gotten older, mm -hmm. not that I'm that old yet, but as mm -hmm. I as I gotten older, I've realized what's important in my life. Right. And you know, aviation doesn't feel like work. I love it, even though I work sometimes 15, 17 hour days, seven days a week. I understand what I'm working towards and I absolutely love it. Right. You know, real estate development's great, but it's really profit driven, whereas this is a lot more passion driven. Look, obviously we have to make money. Right. We have to be as, you know, I, I have inherited with Skyward an incredible company. Mm -hmm. It's been here for 30 years. 
great family mm -hmm. that ran it, and my job is to make sure it's here the next 30 years. Right. So I'm bringing a little bit more, a little bit more uh, modern approach to it. We have a base in Manassas mm -hmm. where we're going to be catering to you know the Washington D.C. metro right. market uh, and helping to really take care of the charter customers down there. But this remains a place where we have incredible infrastructure. We do have a hangar that we rent in Manassas, but we have incredible infrastructure here. We own the FBO. We have a full maintenance capability here that I'll show you here in a moment. And I feel like I have an incredible platform. And you know, look, Liberty was kind of a, it was a training wheels business. Mm -hmm. It had a couple airplanes. It went from being a single King Air operation to an, an operation that we ended up having three airplanes on. Mm -hmm. But three to where we are today is a big leap. Right. And I couldn't have gotten that leap without doing an acquisition, really a merger and acquisition. Right. So. Yeah, and, and for my, um, I'm just going to think about, you know, you know, your experience and, you know, flying these VIP airplanes for the Air Force. It's like, okay, they're, they're experienced pilots with great training, the maintenance, nobody looks over what it costs to maintain these things. Yeah. I mean, it's like, right. you got an open checkbook for, for yeah. that sort of thing. But then to do that when you're when you're paying the bills, it's got to be a, a completely different sort of It is. Situation. You know, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, this is why this was such a logical fit mm -hmm. with me and the past owner. The past owner is also a military guy, mm -hmm. and he is now our director of maintenance. He's been the director of maintenance at Skyward for many years. And he is one of the most phenomenal human beings and really one of the most exceptional maintenance guys I've ever known in my life. And we've become, we've created a, a genuine relationship that we never expected. You know, we thought, oh, it's just a transaction. You mm -hmm. know, our lawyers and accountants all thought we should fight throughout the whole process. And we've never, outside of who pays for lunch or dinner, mm -hmm. we don't have anything to argue mm -hmm. about. Right. We're freakishly similar in the way mm -hmm. we think. I think a lot of that's the military. And, you know, he is an incredible mentor and an incredible friend to me. As we, as we, you know, endeavor to make Skyward a, a, a really an amazing company that's that's going to be here for many decades to come. Yeah, I find this kind of flying fascinating. I've talked to a few pilots who do it. It's, I think, rewarding, interesting. They do a lot of it in the middle of the night, I know. So it can be tough, kind of the work-life balance and, you know, your circadian rhythm and all that. But obviously a, a critical, critical service to, to the medical community. Just another way that general aviation is helping folks all over the world, bringing life to other folks, uh, even as we mourn other, other folks who have passed away. But it still gives that chance to help someone else out and help another family out. And you're right. It's during the overnight, Ian, and you've got to be on call, ready to go at a moment's notice. So kudos to the crews and kudos to Gene for helping set that up. Yep, absolutely. All right, I think that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>